Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord as we begin our study of his word. Father, again, we are thankful that we can study your word, that in your word you have given us light, genuine truth. And it is by means of that truth that we are sanctified as we apply that truth to our thinking first and then to the actions of our life. Father, as we study your word each week and each Bible class, we do this not as an academic exercise to simply learn more that we may know more, but that through God the Holy Spirit that knowledge may be transformed transformed into wisdom as we apply it to different areas of our life. We are not to be conformed to the thinking of the world around us, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind or our thinking. And that only comes through the study of your word as it transforms us by means of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might uh, be able to ascertain the wisdom principles, the divine viewpoint principles that are embedded in your word, and that we may apply those uh, consistently in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This last week, as many of you know, because you were praying for me, I had surgery in my left wrist for uh, carpal tunnel problems, which some of you have had before. And uh, one of the, uh, see, this has been bothering me since last Thursday, and I've had this ongoing problem with numbness and tingling in my left arm. And uh, doing certain activities, my whole arm would just go to sleep, be extremely numb to where I couldn't even move it, as from my shoulder blade all the way down to my uh, to my tips of my fingers and you know, wake up in the middle of the night like that. Or if I would talk on uh, a, the phone or cell phone where I'd have my elbow bent and hold the phone up to my ear about 10 seconds I couldn't even move my arm. In the last couple of days, uh, I have been on the phone several times for 30, 45 minutes or an hour holding the phone next to my ear with no problems whatsoever. That tells us two things. Number one, the doctor correctly diagnosed the problem. And number two, the doctor correctly diagnosed the solution. Now, there's a principle there that it's not just enough to correctly diagnose the problem. There are all kinds of people from all kinds of worldviews and perspectives that can look at any number of situations and correctly diagnose the problem in a way that agrees with you. 
But you're a fool if you think that they're, uh, the fact that they can correctly diagnose the problem means that their solution is correct. And that's particularly important at this time of the election and political cycle because there are all manners of people out there, uh, whether you're talking about radio show hosts or you're talking about uh, television pundits or uh, editorialists or newspapers or politicians, especially politicians, who can correctly analyze the problem in a way that resonates and vibrates in your soul. But their solution stinks. Their solution is worse. And in many cases, their solution just leads to further problems and increased governmental tyranny. Because at the root of every issue in life, and I keep going over this and over this and over this and over this, and some of you may not fully appreciate this yet, but at the root of every single issue in life is your view of God. I don't care whether you're talking about brushing your teeth or balancing your checkbook or voting for president. At the root of your choice is your view of God, and I can take I can take a person's view of God and pretty much, and if they're serious and consistent, I can pretty much tell you what their values are in a number of different areas and what they're going to do in a, in a number of different areas if they are consistent. The trouble is, of course, we know that as George Bernard Shaw said, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, and too many people agree with him, and they don't want to be consistent. They just do whatever uh, they want to do, and however the urge hits them at the moment, and however they have been moved by the emotional appeals of the latest politician or uh, news person or editorialist. And the problem we have in this nation, not the greatest problem, but one of the great problems, is an inability to think, an Ill- inability to think critically and to be able to critically evaluate the issues of life, whether we're talking about just living your life on a day-to-day basis as a believer in terms of of serving your employer in a manner that honors and glorifies the Lord, which is your ultimate employer, and that is what uh, Paul teaches in Colossians chapter 3, that we are to uh, work or serve our masters as unto the Lord, as if we are working for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whatever the area may be when it comes to, especially to politics, because this indeed affects our whole society. Politics comes out of the study of, of how the city, the polis in Greek thought, how this people within the city related to one another. And so this is fundamentally a part of our spiritual life. And it's part, as believers, we are commanded to do all things to the glory of God, and that includes what we do in the voting booth. Now, there's a lot of people today who get very, very uncomfortable with pastors who talk about anything that relates to politics. Of course, most of those people don't come to this church. They probably shouldn't listen. They might learn something. But it is the job of the pastor not only to teach the word, but also to show how the word applies to the issues of the day, the issues that most significantly affect our lives, whether that has to do with 
personal issues in terms of marriage, family, child raising, uh, whether it has to do with uh, education or whether it has to do with broader issues such as economic theory or politics, because we believe that the God who created the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them, that includes those immaterial laws related to ethics, related to moral absolutes, related to economic laws, related to uh, societal laws, and which we refer to as the divine institutions, that God in his omniscience left nothing out, and his word, which claims to teach us how to think about everything, doesn't leave out politics and say, well, you know, we just haven't talked about this in the Bible, but you can just separate this out. This is a neutral area. Or some people think it has to do with science or creation or evolution or something else. They always want some little pet peeve area that they can surgically slice out of the scriptures and say, well, this is an area that is neutral that God hasn't addressed. God has addressed everything. And we have to come to an understanding of just how the word of God addresses the issues uh, of our lives and the issues of the day. Now, that's all a setup for what we're going to be studying for the rest of our study in 2 Kings. 2 Kings, starting with this, really the chapter we're in right now, which is 2 Kings chapter 20, where we see two episodes, one we covered last week, which was Hezekiah's sickness in terms of the in terms of a sin unto death that was, and when he turned back to God and God relieved him of that uh, punishment and promised that he would live another 15 years, to the second episode in that chapter, which relates to the uh, Babylonian envoys who come to Jerusalem and Hezekiah takes them into the temple and he shows off all of his wealth and all of the gold, all the silver in the tabernacle, operating on arrogance, building himself up, and totally uh, apart from humility uh, to the Lord. We might ask the question, it's a very important question, why are these two events given in chapter 20 when both of these events occur prior to the events of chapter 19? Chapter 19 describes the deliverance uh, of of Judah and Jerusalem from the uh, invasion of Sennacherib. Sennacherib dies, he's defeated. That whole story is closed out in the last three verses of chapter 19. But then chapter 20 comes back as sort of a coda to the uh, this section on Hezekiah, and it takes us back to two incidences to, that precede the destruction of the army of Assyria. Why did the author do it that way? Why didn't he just put things in chronological order so it would be a lot easier for me to understand? and a lot easier for me to explain. Because what happens in these two episodes, they're they're connected to each other. So you have to understand how the second episode, which is the real issue in this chapter, is connected to the first episode. If you don't know about the first episode, you don't know why the second episode occurred. What happens in the second episode sets us up for the coming destruction the coming judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple because of the uh, arrogance, because of the uh, hostility toward God, because of the disobedience of the people and their idolatry to God. And we, don't, we can't capture everything that's related to what happens in terms of the Babylonian invasion 
which comes from 605 to 586 B.C., uh, without understanding this chapter. So it's a setup to help us understand why the things that happened historically over the next 115 years happen. Okay? So history, once again, is important. What we see here in this chapter is really a definition of the basic problem that Israel is facing. Hezekiah personifies that problem. The problem that Hezekiah has as a person is a problem that we often have as individuals. The problem that Hezekiah has as an individual is a problem that Israel has had as a united kingdom, as a divided kingdom, and is still manifest in the southern kingdom of Judah. And we can define it in one word, and that word is arrogance. But arrogance is one of those words that often becomes a little too familiar to us, and uh, we become a little too comfortable with it. I know some people who, if they just really don't want to take the time to think about any personal sins that they may have committed in the last five or six hours, they just confess arrogance and think, oh, well, that covers everything, which it pretty much does. But that's a lazy way out, and that sort of short circuits the uh, part of the process. Ar- arrogance is the sort of the mirror twin of the other aspect, the other part, the other component in Satan's thinking. Arrogance glorifies self. Arrogance uh, is a focus on the individual, focuses on, on me. It is all about what I want, all about my agenda, all about uh, what makes me happy. Uh, arrogance is all about avoiding personal responsibility toward God and making me, the individual, the ultimate uh, definer, the ultimate determiner of the issues of the issues in life. But when we operate on arrogance, we always run into a little little problem, don't we? A little conflict, and that is that God says something that isn't exactly what we want to hear, and that immediately generates something called antagonism. So arrogance and antagonism are these mirror twins: arrogance towards God. Uh, I mean, arrogance in relation to self and antagonism in relationship to God. Whenever we are operating on arrogance, we are all also operating in terms of antagonism toward God. Now, we may bury that. We may camouflage it. We may dress it up. We may su- suppress it uh, in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. But what happens is the more we suppress it, the more we stuff it down in the garbage can of our soul, then somebody comes along and just mentions something, not, and doesn't even have to say anything about God. Just those of you who saw the the Ben Stein film on uh, intelligent design, when he interviewed a number of evolutionist scientists, and he would just ask them a very innocuous question about uh, about uh, isn't it possible that evolution could be wrong? They would just flip out. They would just their anger would go from one to ten. And they would immediately start ranting about the fact that all he wanted to do is introduce God into everything. Why do we have to have God? Well, that's the real issue, is they don't want to be personally accountable to God. They want to run life their own way. And so whenever we tweak our arrogance and the fact that we stuffed all this stuff down into the garbage can of our soul by suppressing 
truth in unrighteousness, then whenever we're challenged by truth and, and something starts to bubble up from the bottom of the garbage can of our soul, then we just go ballistic because we've worked hard to stuff that stuff in the garbage can and put the lid on it. And it just comes back. And so we see this again and again and again because God, it's still God's uh, world. God is still in charge. And the truth, as he has defined it, is still the truth of reality. And when people come face to face with reality, especially when it gives them a bloody nose, their reaction is anger. And their reaction is hostility. And that is ultimately why we see the contentiousness that has developed over the last 20 years in the political sphere is because, as it's been called, it is a culture war. But it is more profound than that. It is a, it is a spiritual conflict because there are those who are aligned in their thinking with truth and reality as it is, and there are those who aren't, and those who aren't are consistently suppressing the truth. Now, as our culture has been on a pagan trajectory for the last uh, 125 to 150 years, that what happens is the, those who are promoting the pagan agenda in many different shapes and forms, uh, th- those who promote that agenda have thought that they have had victory within their grasp. And then what happens is, is you get a 9-11 and you get uh, a president who's willing to go to war and, and all of a sudden they think they're losing everything and they're just pressing the political panic button. And, and then you get a ricochet off to the other side. And they're not always correct either because you have to remember that evil always ha- is multifaceted. You can have evil on the left, and you can have evil on the right. And often what we see is just a battle between two manifestations of evil. Evil can, remember, in terms of the sin nature, evil can manifest itself in terms of antinomianism as well as in terms of legalism. Antinomianism is against law. These are the ones who just want to do everything without any regulations, without any kind of restrictions, and just not have any accountability whatsoever and just do whatever they want to do. They're the free, free spirits that don't want any kind of, of uh, regulation whatsoever on their soul, I'm, and I'm talking ethically. And then there are those who want to regulate everything ethically, uh, such as the Pharisees, and those are the religious legalists. They're both manifestations of evil. It's not one's right and the other's wrong. They're both wrong. And you can see the same manifestations in, in political parties. So just because there are issues that one party or one individual who's in one party agrees with or another uh, doesn't mean that that party is always right because there are many in uh, both parties and most in some parties that are just so far out of bounds that uh, we can't give them any credibility uh, whatsoever. But just because somebody's a member of one party that generally you think is right doesn't mean they always are. The ultimate criteria for us is not party affiliation. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us and defines for us what right and wrong is all about and what the real issues in life are. And this is what we learn from a passage such as this. In this last part of this chapter, beginning in verse 12, we have the 
episode where Baradach Baladan, the son of Baladan, who's the king of, of Babylon, and we know from that indication when this occurred, this is just about the time Sennacherib begins to uh, come into uh, Judah, and he's not really focused on Jerusalem at this point. He's dealing with the Philistines and some of the other, and, and the people in Phoenicia and some of those areas. Uh, Baradach Baladan sends letters to, and a present to Hezekiah because he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. See, the episode from 12 to 21 is tied to the fact that he heard what happened in 1 to 11. So one of the reasons we need to know about his sickness is so we need to know that's the occasion for Baradach Baladan sending these envoys uh, to Jerusalem. And so he sends these envoys and he sends a magnificent present and tribute. And what it does is it just puffs up Hezekiah in terms of his own arrogance and his own self-absorption because here's this powerful king who's just, who's just, uh, uh, just complimenting him and sending him this tribute. And so all of a sudden Hezekiah's back out of fellowship and he's just all full of himself. And so he wants to show how great and how powerful he is and how wealthy he is. So in verse 13, he takes them into the temple, the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices, precious ointments, all of his armory. He's going to show off all his weapon systems. He's going to show off the whole uh, treasury, how much gold, how much silver he has. That tells us this is before he has to pay this big tribute to, to Sennacherib. He still has money in the bank. So he, we're told at the end of verse 13, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Verse 14, now we get the divine critique. Isaiah the prophet. Now what for preview of coming attractions? Isaiah, and Jeremiah, Micah, and Hosea, a couple other of the minor prophets, all are writing at approximately the same time. Amos, from 700 down to 586. And they castigate the Israelites for their self-absorption and their refusal to do, do justice to those in society, biblical justice as defined by the law. Now what you find is the uh, theologically and politically liberal crowd, which loves to talk about social justice, goes to these passages to try to sh- justify their position that we uh, that the government should be supporting uh, people, that should be providing a welfare system, that should be taking care of the widows, the orphans, the indigent, all of these other things. The trouble is that's not what the text says. The text isn't a condemnation of the government of of Judah or the government of Israel. It is a condemnation of the people because it was the individual person's responsibility to take care of the elderly, to take care of the sick, take care of the orphans, take care of those who could not work or provide for themselves. It wasn't the government's responsibility. It was the individual person's responsibility because the individual people have become focused on themselves and their own personal pleasure and their own personal prosperity. That's why they got sucked into the fertility religions. And because they've gotten sucked into that, they're violating all of the commandments that are in the Mosaic Law related to loving your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say the government's supposed to love your neighbor with your money. It says you are to love your neighbor as yourself. It's your responsibility to take care of those that God has put within your circle of experience 
to help them with whatever resources God has given you. When the government comes in and steals the money from you under some uh, pseudo-program of, of, or some program of pseudo-compassion to take care of everybody, what they do is they limit your ability to fulfill God's mandates that we're to take care of those in our periphery. Because now you don't have the resources because they're being squandered on some government socialist program in Washington. By the way, social justice is just a... A buzzword or code word for Marxism. So whenever you hear that, just think, okay, this person is is promoting a socialist Marxist uh, uh, program. Hezekiah has gone into self-absorption here, and so Isaiah is going to bring out the uh, revelatory sledgehammer and wake him up. So he comes to him and he starts asking questions. Always a good way to get to the truth. What did these men say from where did they come? So Hezekiah said, well, they came from a far country, from Babylon. You know, he's thinking, yeah, they're so far away, they'll never come here. Famous last words. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that is, all of your wealth, all of your possessions, everything that you have just glorified in and bragged about, when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. That's a great prophecy. This is like 701, 702 B.C., and this is going to be fulfilled in uh, about 100 years, three invasions from Babylon, 605 593 and 586 BC are going to just decimate the southern kingdom, uh, southern kingdom of Judah. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He says, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, uh, sons such as Daniel and others who were with him in that first deportation. These were sons of the aristocracy. Uh, they were taken to Babylon. So, some of your sons will, who will descend from you whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. There's humility here. He's just been uh, confronted with the truth of God's word, and he responds appropriately in terms of, in terms of humility and accepting uh, God's word. He doesn't react in anger or bitterness. Hezekiah was a true spiritual giant and leader, but he also had as many true spiritual giants do, has great, had some great flaws because we're all sinners. For, and then he says, uh, will there not be peace and truth at least in my day? See, that little arrogance comes up. He says, well, you know, as long as this doesn't happen when I'm alive, I guess we can get away with it. You know, just put the consequences off a couple of dozen uh, years. You know, let the next generation pay for our trillion-dollar debt. As long as I don't have to do it while I'm in office, that's great. Haven't we heard that before? How modern Hezekiah is. Now, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his mind, how he made a pool and a tunnel, uh, which we've talked about before, and brought water in the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and then uh, Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. And that's when you hear the heavy bass start to play as they introduce the most evil king in the history of the southern kingdom of Israel, Manasseh. He's going to reign for 55 years, 
and he is much worse than his grandfather. His grandfather is Ahaz. I want you to turn back to uh, chapter 16. Let's just sort of get a little review here and watch the, the trends of history. Ahaz goes back to the sins of Ahab and Jezebel in the northern kingdom. He's going to introduce the worst of the worst religions in all the history of humanity, the fertility religions of Baal and the Ashtoreth and the human sacrifice of the worship of Chemosh, where an infant sacrifice, where uh, parents would bring their babies to be immolated. That means burned alive in the arms of this idol where there was this extremely hot fire in order to uh, placate the God and somehow get blessing. In other words, in order to trade with the gods for prosperity, for money, for wealth, for security, they would sacrifice their children. Hmm. Once again, how modern. Ahaz becomes king when he is 20 years old, according to verse 2, and we're given the evaluation there that he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, not in the idolatry of some of his predecessors in Judah, but in the worst of the offenders, those of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. That means he had his son immolated in the fiery arms of Moloch, or as he was also known as Chemosh. He made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills under every green tree. And so this sets us up for the fact that he is... Uh, he has compromised in the worst way at the most foundational level of thought and that he has become a traitor to God in Israel. In Israel, it's choosing another God or another religion isn't just a matter of personal choice as it's so often framed today. Uh, we really have to pay attention to that because that's what people want to say. Oh, it's just like you want a vanilla uh, vanilla ice cream, or do you want chocolate ice cream? You know, whatever, as long as, as you're happy. And if you don't want any ice cream, that's fine. That's good, just, just, just whatever you're happy with. It really has no consequence unless maybe you eat too much of it and you become some kind of a radical, which, of course, they try to paint fundamentalists as. Uh, anybody who believes in the Bible, you're just taking it way, way too seriously. But as... Bible believers, as those who believe that there really is a personal, infinite God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, we believe there are implications of that reality that extend to every area of our life and that this has been revealed to us by that God in his word. So that when somebody makes a choice for another God, even though they have the freedom to do, do so, that choice isn't as simple as just choosing chocolate ice cream instead of vanilla ice cream. But it brings with it an entire host of beliefs and ideas and values that are 100% antagonistic to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all that he has revealed to us that those values that they hold, even though at some point they may appear to be similar or the same or complementary, 
After all, the most pagan priest of Baal is going to look at an oak tree and say, that's an oak tree and you can agree with him. But that doesn't mean his view of the oak tree is the same as your view of the oak tree. See, just that goes back to my opening illustration. Just because somebody can identify a problem doesn't mean they have the correct solution. Even though you may stand up and cheer at the way they've defined the problem doesn't mean that you want to have anything to do with their solution because their solution is going to come out of their out of their whole world view. And so we have to understand a lot of things, and we have to evaluate a lot of issues whenever it comes to the voting booth. That means you have to be knowledgeable, you have to study, you have to read, you have to watch the news, you have to write the, read the, uh, or rather watch the right news, listen to various different pundits. You have to study, you have to think, you have to get out of your little shell uh, of, of comfort and prosperity because we're not living in a world like we lived in the last... Uh, 40 or 50 years of our lives where you can afford to complacently go about the issues of your life and just go into the voting booth and, well, you know, I'll do a flip of it. This guy looked good. This guy looked good. I heard his name before. We can't do that. Too many people have been doing that, or they haven't voted because they don't think it matters. I think that we are in the third most significant time in the history of this nation. The first was during the time of the American uh, War of Independence. The second is during the time of the War of Northern Aggression. And the third is now. That the very life and future of the history of this constitutional republic is at stake. And there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who are using constitutional verbiage. Just because they use language you like doesn't mean they, they mean that. You have to go look at their voting record. Look at their belief systems. Learn about this. Because if the wrong people get elected, you won't have the freedoms much longer. And just because they talk a lot about freedom, just because people talk the talk, doesn't mean they really believe that. And at election time, everybody wants to sound like a patriotic constitutionalist. But that doesn't mean mean that they are. A lot of decisions. I like Maxine. A little cartoon here. Voting is like choosing your favorite mosquito out of a swarm. You know, a lot of times the choices we make are not choices between good and bad, but sometimes it's between bad or worse. We just have to be careful. Now, how do we make these decisions? We make these decisions, I think, as a believer, you've got, you've got five basic criteria. And we've gone through these before, and you can go back and listen to my election special where I did this in about six lessons a couple of years ago. But basically it comes down to understanding the divine institutions. Divine institution is a term that's been used by Christians to speak of certain absolute social structures. And in Scripture, these social structures take precedent over economic structures. Today we're all concerned about the economy and jobs and these kinds of things, but when you study the Mosaic Law, what God says is that your belief, your religious belief, your theology is more determinative of the health of the economy of the nation than your understanding of sound economic policy. Wow. See, we've been so secularized, we think that the understanding causative issues in history and causative issues in economics and causative issues in politics ultimately boil down to what you can measure in the laboratory of life or history. And that's a lie. 
Because what God says in the Mosaic Law to Israel is if you disobey me and you go after other gods, then I'm going to bring these judgments on you and you're going to lose jobs. You're not, your, 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 your crops will not come to uh, uh, fertility. You're going to lose money. Uh, I'm going to defeat you militarily. It doesn't matter ultimately how much technology we have, how much money we have, how much education we have. If we're divorced from the truth, then God says that will destroy all of these other things. So the ultimate issue is always going to be God. So the divine institutions come out of our understanding of Scripture, and they apply to everybody, every nation, believer, unbeliever, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever. If you honor these institutions, there will be a measure of stability and success in a nation because this is how God structured human beings, and structured society. So these are absolute social structures established by God, embedded within the social structure of the human race, and thus these are for all the human race, and they are unbreakable realities. Modern paganism rejects them at their core and looks at these institutions as simply uh, pragmatic byproducts of man's psychosocial evolution and their cultural conventions. So we can change our definition of marriage. We can change uh, our emphasis on human responsibility. We're not individually responsible to an external creator God but we are just responsible to one another, that sins aren't individual acts that violate the character of God, but they are social uh, social mistakes that hurt humanity. And, and that's what sin is. And that everybody's basically good instead of what the Scripture says, which is basically evil. So we have these divine institutions, which we've covered before. The first three are individual responsibility, And we're responsible to God. Each institution, as I've taught, has an authority. The authority of the first divine institution is God. We are all accountable to God for everything in life. We are accountable to what God's commands are to us, and part of that includes labor and uh, uh, responsibility in every area of, of life. Adam was put in the garden to work the garden before sin ever cast its shadow on the garden. He had responsibility, he labored, but not in a toilsome way. Toil gets added to it as a result of the curse, as a result of sin. But before that, he had things to do. God assigned him tasks, and this was work. This is the whole basis for understanding uh, free market economic theory, is personal responsibility and accountability for what you do, and you get out of what you produce what then benefits you, and uh, builds wealth in your life. Second divine institution is marriage. The authority is husband. When the authority becomes the wife or marriage breaks down due to the ease of divorce laws or marriage breaks down uh, because it's redefined as marriage between uh, same-sex partners, this will have devastating consequences in the, uh, in, in, in the culture. And then family. When the family breaks down, as we've seen, we've seen the black... The, the black family just decimated by welfare over the last 50 years. Marxism within the black community as a result of the thinking of the NAACP has devastated the black community and the black family. It's because they basically redefined, the, 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 basically the, the divine institution of family got redefined by the federal government in terms of the welfare system and how that was applied. 
Now, that's a doctoral dissertation in and of itself. Most people have no idea about that. And because they don't have knowledge, the nation has gone through horrible consequences somewhere. I think Hosea said, when there's no knowledge, people perish. The other next two divine institutions are government and nations, individual national identity. Now, these represent actually two different groups of institutions. The first three are all established before the fall, before their sin. They are designed to promote productivity and to advance civilization. If we don't honor those three, we cannot see productivity, we cannot see economic expansion, we cannot see uh, civilization secure. But then after the fall, we've got to restrain sin. Evil was rampant before the flood of Noah. So after the flood of Noah, there are two institutions that are established. The first was, was human government. But government is, the institution isn't inherently evil, but its practice becomes so because it's practiced by fallen human beings. So government has to be limited as much as possible. The fifth divine institution, which is set up some uh, two to three hundred years after the fall, I mean after the flood, it's at the Tower of Babel. So these must be understood as two distinct institutions. But they're both designed to restrain evil. It's only when evil is restrained that productivity and prosperity can take place. But when evil is allowed to flourish, then productivity will diminish and tyranny will increase. Now, when the, fe- when the federal government of this nation increases in size, the larger the federal government gets, the larger the deficits become, the fewer your freedoms are. The smaller the government is, the greater your freedoms will be. And, and that's just, that's just uh, political, political reality. Now, what happens is that as government grows beyond its stated size, it begins to assault the first three divine institutions because either you're going to be individually accountable for your life and your decisions to God or you're going to be accountable for them to the government. The government is, when the government is outside of the biblical bounds, it is in competition with God and has a messianic complex. The federal government, under the progressive political philosophy since the late 19th century, has had a messiah complex, that the government can solve the problem. And this is a core belief that is in contrast with a constitutional belief that government must be limited. This is why when you get into, into debates with people over specific issues, that may come up specific pol- uh, political issues that that might come up is that that there's a there are more fundamental issues that are involved limited government versus unlimited government presumes and presupposes total depravity and the evil of man or not that's where the discussion needs to be the discussion is not over uh, individual are specific issues. Now, we need to debate that, but the only reason those come up and become such, such uh, sources of heated argumentation is because there are more profound issues, uh, issues at stake. I put this chart up on the board a while back. 
that we have at the upper level, this is the level at which we operate, at political, national, or individual actions. Let me give you, um, let me go back to that. Okay, political, national, individual actions. Let me give you three cases in point right now, in which case we recognize we have a problem. And nobody debates this problem. Nobody's saying that that's not the problem. It goes back to the opening illustration. Most people can properly identify a problem. One problem we've had, it, one problem we're facing in the city right now, some of us have experienced it after uh, deluges have hit us late at night or at night during Bible class. We've tried to get out of here, and we've had flooding in the streets, and that is a problem of uh, drainage, and we need better drainage, better sewer system, things of this nature. Uh, Houston is, you know, we're low and swampy, and it's, it easily floods. One reason why we tend to cancel class whenever it looks like it's going to uh, rain hard. Another example at national level is a debate over the improvement of health care or health care costs. We have a serious problem with rising health care costs in this, in this country. That's the problem. Everybody can agree to that. It's the solution to that where the debate lies, not in identifying the problem. Another issue is global warming. Saw a great bumper sticker on the way in this morning. Said, "Stop global whining." <laughs> we can all agree there's hard data that that there is warming that is occurring, and we can agree that there are cycles, fluctuations of of Earth's temperature. The issue is what causes it and what the solution to that is. That's where the debate lies. Well, what happens is that those who are very sophisticated in their debating techniques like to shift it to just identifying the problem and staying away from the real root issues that cause the debate and the disagreement over the solutions. And whenever we propose one solution or another, and I'm just going to take one that is appropriate to today. I don't have it up here. Do you have it? Did you? What? Okay. This is going to be on the ballot. Prop 1. Relating to the creation of a dedicated funding source to enhance, improve, and renew drainage systems and streets. I think we can all agree that it's a good thing to have a better drainage system and to uh, renew the drainage system that, that we have. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. I love the way this proposition is written. So the proposition is, shall the city charter of the city of Houston be amended to provide for the enhancement, improvement, and ongoing renewal of Houston's drainage and streets by creating a dedicated pay-as-you-go fund for drainage and streets? See how innocuous that's worded? Isn't that a good thing? Let's all hold hands and kumbaya and go home and vote for this. (laughs) It's what's not said that is the problem. This is where critical thinking skills come in. In most political issues, the, the, the legislators are crafty enough to put things down in a way that you read them and you go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's not what's said in many cases that's wrong. It's what's not said. Okay, who's going to be assessed uh, for this, for the financing of this, how much is the assessment going to be? What are the regulations going to be for the assessment? This is just an open-ended, 
opportunity for the city government to come and take as much money as they want from every individual and organization, including nonprofits and churches and schools, that they want. You know, this month it may be $60, next month it may be uh, $600, and in five years from now, maybe $6,000. Once they get their foot in the door on this, once you establish this as a legal precedent, you have basically reached out and taken the handcuffs from city government, and you have chained yourself to the city government as a slave. And you have taken away very seductively, you have taken away the non-profit, non-tax status of every church in the city. And our mayor has specifically stated that this is going to apply to every church, every there are a couple of exceptions out there, but all churches, not, not to state institutions or colleges or schools, so they do recognize inconsistently certain exceptions. And this has hit, of course, the pages in the Chronicle today, or what I like to refer to as the Houston Marxist rag. Uh, Rick Casey in his editorial about, entitled Preachers, Sinners, and the Flood Fee. So they're calling it a fee. A rose by any no- other name is still a tax. And a fee is just a tax on churches and other nonprofit organizations. Anybody who owns land is going to be subject to this. And every preacher in town is incensed about this, and they should be, because this is an assault against the First Amendment. And anybody who doesn't understand that, in my opinion, I'm sorry, I just don't think they should be allowed within 100 yards of a voting booth or to even be serve in city government as uh, one of my colleagues, a black pastor in town who is a, also a graduate of Dallas Seminary, but who's on the opposite political end of the spect- or opposite end of the political spectrum and often speaks for the NAACP in town, told me on Friday, he said, our mayor is just, is just a living example of the Peter Principle. She has risen way above her level of incompetence. Now, when he and I can agree on political issues, you know there's a real problem facing, facing the city. But this is also a problem in that, that there are many people who will read that and go, oh, isn't it nice? We're going to solve the, the, flood, the, the flood problems. We're going to have better streets. Let's just give away our freedom. This is a serious issue. This is tyranny in action. This is a direct assault on First Amendment rights, which is the establishment of freedom for the for worship and religious expression. This will limit a church. In fact, it's limiting education. HISD has come out and said, if this goes through, we're going to have to, it's, we're probably going to lose 70 teacher jobs and I don't know how many other jobs. This is horrible. It's poorly written legislation. It's almost as bad as the health care legislation. See, that's the problem, isn't the solution and that some things need to be fixed. It's that when they start writing the solutions, there's so many loopholes and so many things that are left unstated or open-ended that you can drive, you know, truckloads of Gestapo troops through to, in, to enslave the population. And so this kind of thing has to, 
has to stop, whether it's talking about something like a local ordinance or health care or global warming. Now, the reason this happens is because, like Rick Casey comes out here at, in, his, in his opening, and he says uh, about the pastors, he says, they oppose the drainage fee because Mayor Anise Parker says they will have to pay it. And he wants to make the issue is these, these cheapskate churches don't want to pay their fair share. See, he's arguing only at this upper level. But the real issue that he wants us to ignore is, is it legal and is it right to do this? Now, that implies some, more, some subterranean issues, which is, how do we know what right or wrong is? Now we're getting into some real heavy discussions. That's why some people in this country end up on one side of the aisle and people... Other people end up on the other side of the aisle, and the same people consistently end up on the same sides of the aisle over different issues. It's because of these next, these these bottom two categories. How do you know right or wrong, and how do you, and what's your understanding of ultimate reality? This is where the debate is. This is why we have these culture wars. Is because you have people who are operating on a worldview that doesn't take into account any of the divine institutions. This is also seen in the large editorial here called Vote Yes on Prop 1 for Houston's Future, written by uh, Mayor Anise Parker. And, of course, they always try to deflect the issue here, and she says, for the first time in Houston's history, there would be a dedicated income stream, a lockbox. Well, some of you are alert. That's that same lockbox. It's got our Social Security secure. Right, that's, got, that's a lockbox with a sieve on the bottom. If you just get, you know, an opportunity to throw your money at city government all the time, might as well go live under the bridge at Wharton I-10. The battle takes place here on epistemology and on, basically on the ultimate issue of God. So you have to think these things through. These are all logically related categories, and you start with God, and you're going to end up with trying to understand how you should act and move on particular issues like this. See, what happened in Israel is Ahaz changed that bottom box. And what will happen in chapter when we get into chapter 21 the next time is Manasseh shifts it back. Hezekiah changed it. He shifts back to the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in, cleaned everything up, straightened everything up, but it didn't really change the hearts of the people. The problem in this country is not that we have elected officials that dominate Congress and that are in the White House, but that we have a nation of people who elected them. The problem is with the people, as Pogo said, for those of you who can remember it, we have met the enemy and he is us, is that we elected these leaders. Now, we get the leaders we deserve because we have a culture that has denied the truth of these bottom two boxes in terms of biblical Christianity, which was the foundation, whether you were a Christian or not, of this country for the first uh, hundred years, and then it began to gradually get eroded for the next 50 years. But for the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years, we've been operating on, on pagan ideas of God and pagan ideas of how we know truth, and thus we get pagan ethics and pagan political decisions. And this, this is continued. We can change out everybody in Washington, and you can put in every fiscal conservative that you can think of, we haven't solved the problem. Because the problem is a spiritual problem 
the prob- we're just dealing with symptoms. And, in, and the only real solution is a solution that takes us back to the absolute truths of Scripture. Deuteronomy, in the Mosaic Law, God says to Israel, See, I've taught you statutes and judgments, or Moses is speaking, He says, See, I've taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The principle was that if Israel did this, they would be so prosperous They would be blessed by God to such an extent that people around the world would come and look at them with their mouths open, saying, how in the world do they do that? And their prosperity and their blessing isn't related to the fact that they had a good constitution, but because they had a divinely given, a divinely inspired uh, constitution. When you throw that out, what you're left with is just personal opinion and inclination, This was warned about by James Otis, one of our founding fathers, who said, When a man's will and pleasures is only rule and guide, what safety can there be either for him or against him but in the point of a sword? We've got to have an absolute external value system. Otherwise, it just comes down to my personal opinion against yours, and that leads to conflict. The Florida Supreme Court in the late 19th century said that the Christian concept of right and wrong, and that would be the Judeo-Christian concept, because all of this is really grounded in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. The Christian concept of right and wrong or right and justice motivates every rule of equity. It is the guide by which we dissolve uh, domestic frictions and the rule by which all legal controversies are settled. Of course, we don't believe that anymore. That's why we have this, this, this cultural friction today but is there hope yes there's always hope scripture says in jeremiah 17 blessed is a man who trusts in the lord and whose hope or whose confidence is in the lord for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will see nor will it cease from yielding fruit And then in verse 13, Jeremiah writes, O Lord, the hope of Israel. That's the only hope, is the Lord. The only hope. Now, when you go back and look at what we've been studying in Kings, we had Ahaz who was evil, but there was hope because Hezekiah came. He turned the people back to the Lord, superficially though, because it didn't take root in their hearts. And so then you have Manasseh. Now, we have to decide, are we living in a time of Ahaz where there is going to be a real change and real hope, but even though the administration changes as it did between Ahaz and Hezekiah, unless there's a hard change of the people, if there is a superficial change, then all we're going to do is go back, like Peter says, a dog returning to its vomit. We're just going to go back to have Manasseh and it will be even worse. The hope, our only hope, is the Lord. And as as I read in the psalm this morning, Psalm 27, it's even if we go through horrible circumstances. See, so many of us are so, we're just like the culture around us. We are so tied to our personal prosperity and comfort and security. We just want to live our lives and not be involved with all this garbage. We think that if, if it's all going to fall apart, that somehow God lost control. God never lost control. Look at Daniel. 
Look at uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they all get transported back and, and taken as captives back to Babylon. Their lives are completely uh, turned over. They lose everything that they had, but they don't lose God, and God has stability and a plan for their life. And if things don't go well in this nation, and, and this nation goes on a grease skid into complete collapse, we're the, ought to be the happiest people in the world because we have hope. Because our hope isn't based on what happens in this temporal world. Our hope is built on the eternality of God and in the truth of his promise. Jeremiah 3.21, we sang, Great is thy faithfulness. That's what this hymn is based on. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. I recall to mind Austrian economics. Oops, no, that's not what he's talking about. (laughs) I recall to mind the Constitution of the United States. Oops, that's not what he's talking about. I recall to mind what? Doctrine. God's word. Therefore, I have hope. Through the, Lord, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He is the only hope. And he is the only one who's going to provide any measure of stability. Without him, it doesn't matter what happens at the next election. But with him, it does. It can make a difference. And we dare not put our hope in man. I don't care who the pundit is on TV. Jim Myers talked a while back about Glenn Beck, and I understand some people here got upset about that. I'm glad you did. Maybe it woke you up. You're putting too much hope in any one man. That's another issue, but I couldn't believe it. I had sent out a number of emails to pastors previous to that week, all dealing with the, the, the serious issue of Glenn Beck's Mormonism and how that affects his interpretation of U.S. founding documents. Jim didn't get any of those, and he was right down the line. And what was interesting is the pastors who operate in states that are dominated by Mormons were saying, you are so right, this is a major issue, we have got to pay attention to this, and the pastors who were in, in, in areas of the country where that's not an issue were saying, well, are you sure this is an issue? We don't really know. You know, let's not get too excited about this. The guy, people who know, understand Mormon theology know this is a serious problem. We can agree with him on a lot of things in politics. But cursed is the man who trusts in man. Get your eyes off of these people. You can listen to them. They have good ideas. Sometimes they have great ideas on understanding Constitution, political issues. But our hope is in Jesus Christ. It is not in a political solution. And until you get your eyes off of that, that political solution is the ultimate hope, you're just as much a part of the problem as everybody you think is part of the problem. The only hope is Jesus Christ, both in terms of eternal salvation and in terms of the immediate present history of the United States. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for its truth, the way your light sheds light on everything else, so that only in your light do we see light. Father, we're thankful that we have salvation in Jesus Christ, and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That salvation is secure, can never be lost, and that he is our only hope. You are our only hope. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who has never really understood that, who is not sure of their salvation or confident of their future destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and confident. Father, your word says that there is only one solution, that's Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
This is your opportunity if you've never trusted Christ to do that. The instant you trust in Christ, God, the Father who's omniscient, knows what you're believing in for salvation. And at that instant, you are regenerate. You're saved. It can never be taken from you, and you have eternal life. Then the issue becomes, what are you going to do with that life? Are you going to make the Word of God your primary objective to understand it and to apply it in your life and in your thinking and every, every area of thought? Or are you just going to continue to live life for your own personal pleasure? Or are you going to live for God? That's the issue before us. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we studied this morning. And we pray again for our nation, for our country. And we pray that you would uh, limit the forces of paganism and tyranny that would seek to destroy our freedoms. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.